Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode A. Today we are talking about Live and Let Die from 1973, starring Roger Moore as James Bond. This is Brian. Oh, this is Gary. And this is Edmund. So I will attempt to uh, take a run at uh, a bit of a plot introduction here. It, the film begins when we are hearing that a number of British agents have died and have been killed, uh, all in connection to and near this island of San Monique. There are clearly strange things going on there, and there are strange things with uh, uh, what's happening at the United Nations, where San Monique is represented there, and some, uh, some odd things seem to be happening, and we are introduced to Dr. Kananga, who is uh, the, the dictator, essentially, of this small Caribbean island, San Monique, and we start hearing strange things about what may be going on there, and what may be going on in New Orleans and in New York, and Bond is sent to investigate. And I'm not going to go into much more detail than that in the synopsis because it uh, gets a little bit convoluted. Yeah, so um, I think obviously the most important element of this movie is the introduction of Roger Moore uh, as James Bond, since he would go on to play the part for another seven years. This is the beginning of an era in James Bond movies, a very a certain a different style of film to some extent um, from the Connery years, as Moore sort of takes the character and and does his own thing with it slightly differently. There was some discussion of this, and it was um, sort of thought at the time, I think, that it was a good idea for him to take the character in his own direction rather than attempting to do it you know, closely to what Connery had done. And I think that was wise and worked pretty well, certainly in this film. Yeah, more yeah, certainly. Uh, oh, Edmund, go ahead. Um, you know, I was actually uh, having not seen this one in a while, and also when I when I was watching it back in the seventies, not being as familiar with Roger Moore's other work, um, I was almost feeling like in the beginning part of the film, you know, if you didn't know it was a James Bond movie, you know, it almost felt like it could have been a, an adaptation of the Saint. Um, you know, in terms of I mean, some of the departures he was taking with it, you know, I mean, yes, I know the Saint doesn't you know, doesn't sleep around the way Bond does, so the whole opening would be slightly different. But certainly, once you get to New York and uh, sort of the new sort Sort of you know very you know very very stylish outfit and um, just the way he's carrying himself is so different from Connery and Lazenby that uh, you know now, now being more familiar with his Simon Templar work you know yeah it was, it was definitely putting a bit of that damp on it and uh, and uh, and, even, and even just a, a, an odd thing it seemed to me was you know though that uh, when we're used to Bond sort of being the man of action and you know his, you know his, his cars are very important and he's you know always sort of you know driving himself around and here we have you know Connery having it have more, you know, actually being driven places, which, you know, of course, becomes rather significant on, the, you know, that first little action scene on the west side of the highway when they uh, take out his driver. Yes, that's, that's true. It is uh, a bit of a different style there. I think there was some concern when they were making it about uh, it being too much like uh, Roger Moore's earlier role of Simon Templar from The Saint. And apparently they uh, were very careful that he should never raise his eyebrows because that was a big <laughs> Simon Templar thing. I don't think yeah. he followed that instruction, though. <laughs> I mean, his <laughs> eyebrows are his most expressive elements throughout the series. <coughs> I think it was fairly close in this film. It certainly wasn't later. Well, the older he got, the bigger his eyebrows got, perhaps. And the more, and, and the more his face sort of hardened, <laughs> the eyebrows were the only thing that could actually show emotion. They overshadowed the rest of them. Pretty much. But we do get, you know, this uh, sort of introductory look at Roger Moore as Bond. Uh, uh, Something that I thought was uh, kind of interesting, I was on the the lookout to see what our first view of Bond would be. And after what we got of Connery and Dr. No, and then Lazenby and Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and sort of Connery coming back in Diamonds Are Forever... Uh, we had something uh, something rather different. The first time we saw him, he was in bed. 
Yeah, it's not an overwhelming moment. Uh, that whole scene, honestly, at Bond's apartment, well, I think they're maybe trying to do the, like Sean Connery was in his apartment in the first movie, and so why not go to Bond's apartment? But I really don't like that scene. I mean, the whole M coming over in the middle of the night, it just, it's the other way around. They summon him to M. That whole scene just mm-hmm. didn't, didn't put Bernard Lee on a good footing. It, it just didn't work for me. It's, it's a, I thought it was a weak introduction. It was a strange way of doing it, of having... Uh of having M and Moneypenny drop in and Bond is trying to find the girl. I think it, to hide the girl, I think it was um, a reasonably good character scene. Like I liked uh, how it sort of set up Roger Moore doing this kind of thing. And uh, as odd as it was to have M coming to Bond, uh, I, I did like Bernard Lee in that scene. Yeah, well, I also guess that they, by doing it that way, they're establishing that this isn't a new Bond. Once again, they're making it clear this is a Bond that's been involved with all the things that have happened before. So they're familiar enough for them to do this, to come over to his place. Yeah, I guess I sort of got the impression that they were on the way somewhere or something like that. But it definitely... Yeah, I mean, my 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 sense of it was also that uh, you know there's you know as we'll see increasingly I mean, throughout the more era, you know, that they were going for this sort of lighter tone, so having this you know some sort of almost you know you know slightly sex forest aspect of you know hiding the girl and uh, M coming over and uh, you know sort of doing his, uh, his his latest little beat on you know all you know all all the, all these silly things that uh, Bond knows so much about, but you know you know the espresso machine in this case. Uh, but certainly for 1973, you know, it was not something you'd see in uh, every high-end kitchen the way you do now. <laughs> so, um, and uh, you know, so yeah, they, they were definitely trying to, to you know, loosen it up and uh, you yeah, know, and give I, the uh, you know, yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, as a comic scene, it actually works, which is better than than many other attempts at comedy in this film. But well, Roger Moore is good at doing that kind of comedy, and they sort of played a little more towards humor starting at this point because they had Roger Moore and he had such a good sense of timing for the type of thing that they were working with, with the, with the humor. So it was sort of playing to what they had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, you know, for, for the most part with those kinds of things, uh, certainly at this stage, it worked reasonably well. Now we should get into some of the other characters because there were, well, quite, uh, quite an interesting cast. Um, I think we definitely have to talk about, um, about the Bond girls, especially Jane Seymour as Solitaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she was, obviously, the, the interesting, the credit has an introducing Jane Seymour, since she'd only done some very, very limited work on TV, I think, before that. This is probably, her, this is her first movie, I believe. Yeah, she, well, in, in the States, she wasn't well known. In the UK, she was doing the Aneedon line, which was a big deal. Oh, okay. But again, she was part of that cast, and I think this was uh, a significantly bigger role and a much more, you know, internationally visible kind of thing. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and also, also at the time, anybody who'd been working in TV, it was like, no, it was the big thing, you know, when you have your first big film, as far as Hollywood's concerned, yeah, that, you're getting introduced, <laughs> regardless of how much TV work you've done. So. Yeah, that, I mean, was that was probably more the case then than it is now. And she, yeah, she's, she's very yeah. beautiful. In the movie, she's very beautiful. But the truth is, the reason why we all remember Jane Seymour is mostly because she did so well after this movie. Um, her successes in TV and other films and just in general making an industry name of herself. Uh, she's probably the most successful, financially successful Bond girl uh, in terms of a lengthy career. I mean, she yeah, may definitely. be Halle Berry. Maybe, Halle Berry probably would, would beat her, but that was that's probably one of the only ones, maybe. Yeah. And and I guess my thought is, in this movie, she actually doesn't do much of anything. She, <laughs> she doesn't just, have a lot to do. She just looks good, uh, but she's really not that interesting. Uh, her her big her big thing is she has these powers, these, these psychic powers that only last as long as she's a virgin, and then after mm-hmm. that, she's just a kidnap victim for the entire film. Right. That's right. And, and there's really nothing. She doesn't provide any assistance. She's, she doesn't have any useful skills or knowledge even. And so I, I don't know. I like her. In the movie she's attractive but not like she's thankfully she had a great career afterwards well considering yeah. what i what i will say about solitaire is that considering she doesn't have a lot to do you know the actress is just not given very much to work with she does very well with what she has she reads a lot of emotion into it 
and I thought for what it was, it was played very well. Yes, in terms of the trapped girl of the bad guy, the bad guy is like that girl. She does a very good job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a role we've seen more than once in variations in the Bond films, and I think she does it. She does it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although um, there is that sort of odd twist where you know, sort of like you know, unlike uh, you know from from Russia with Love, you know, whereas you know, sort of the you know the girl sort of is, get fixated on Bond and you know is just sort of head over heels for him. And in this, it's it's kind of odd how it's like you know, yes, he, he seems to have won her over, and then you know the the moment the uh, you know the henchmen show up, you know, she she immediately turns, or is she turning just because you know her regular captain keepers are here? Oh, uh, and, that's and, why and, she's turning. Yeah. You know, and then, and then, and, you know, a man shift back at the end, of course. So, so the way that's, you know, but certainly the way, the, the way that's all played, I mean, you know, it, you know, it, it uh, you know, yeah, it, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, I've, I've, I've never been quite sure, you know, how, how, how believable that is. <laughs> well, her behavior makes sense. And as long as she acted like she'd been abducted by him, uh, yeah. they can prove it until what proved it was she had no power left. Right. Sure. Which was one of, which yeah. was an interesting scene, but yeah. Yeah. This was another case, we've had a few now, of Bond sort of making things significantly worse uh, by sleeping with someone. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and to be honest... Uh, Go, going back to Goldfinger. Right, well, the Goldfinger, that's true. Uh, but uh, another thing about Goldfinger was the whole issue with uh, the sexual politics with Pussy Galore. To some extent, mm-hmm. I, I personally find his behavior to Solitaire worse in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, given given the laws, I know that, you know, deceiving someone into sleeping with them is, is tantamount to rape. And uh, so Bond's behavior in this is quite appalling. Uh, with respect to Solitaire. I mean, sure, the first card did show up as the lovers, so mm-hmm. the cards were telling her what was going to happen, but yeah. it's, yeah, but it's still a very creepy and unpleasant. I find it a bit unpleasant, more unpleasant than the Pussy Galore thing, even. It is a little bizarre at the very least. Yeah, yeah, and even I mean, you know, the, the um, I mean, I understand, you know, sort of, you know, it's it dramatic use, you know, for you know, for the audience, but you know, but even the whole thing, you know, yeah, when you know, when you tip the deck over and you know, r- reveals that they're, you know, they're, it was completely stacked. It's, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, even the, the first time I saw that, I was, you know, like, wait a minute, that's not fair. <laughs> in Bond's defense, if he had believed she really had power, he wouldn't have, he might not have done it, but he was surprised to find out. That that was that her power was real, sort of, and that that took it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he probably would have wanted to use it in some other way if he could have. I'm sure it would have helped. Yeah, but it did. It did sort of seem to me like he was, uh, uh, you know, marching in and doing something uh, for no benefit other than you know just immediately for him, with uh, you know particular detriment to the whole situation. Yeah. But uh, some some interesting stuff and some good scenes there, nonetheless. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, so that brings us to our second Bond girl, who uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think in my opinion, she is probably the worst Bond girl ever. She she really does qualify. She has no, almost no redeeming qualities. She's a terrible actress, given a terrible part to play. Mm-hmm. And the the sole distinction here is they wanted to have her be Bond, the first black woman to sleep with Bond, which yep. just seemed like a very small thing at this point. And uh, it's the only, I mean, there's nothing good. She screams a lot. She's just terrible. The only scene, mm-hmm. the, the only scene she is good in is in the one where she goes, um, you wouldn't kill me after we slept together. And, and Moore delivers his, one of his darker lines, which is a good, his darker sideline where he said like, well, I certainly wouldn't have killed you before we'd done it. <laughs> Speaking of creepy. <laughs> well, at least that one that one spoke to the sort of um, darker side of him. But she was he knew she was yeah. trying to take advantage of him. So he, he knew she was lying. So he didn't uh, really think much about it. But it, her whole character is badly written. Is she really a CIA agent? I don't yeah, know. Got turned. Yeah, Ro- yeah. Rosie was an odd character that just didn't didn't work very well. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've you know, since they don't really choose to explain it at all. I mean, my, my I've always chosen to take it that you know, no, she, you know, they replace the CIA agent with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would work. Yeah, that might make sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, but you know, but we we never really find out, you know, but uh, you know, that you know, that that's the only way I could sort of reconcile it in my head. But if there's, there's any way she could have worked for Felix Leiter for real and still been on the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> she was also sort of our way into some of the the voodoo things, which were a very large part of this film. 
and the idea yeah. that yes, people, you know, people actually uh, do believe some of these things, and the fear really is there. Uh, mm-hmm. So she did have a function there. That in her first couple of scenes, I thought some of that was uh, was okay, but it just didn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly the, the, the that's the other part that sort of has made me always just assume she's a local, but uh, you know, no, she is so, so fearful of all the voodoo stuff, and you know, and just you know, absolutely believes in all its power, and of course does pay for it, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had sort of figured that she was a local, regardless, or from that part of the world, regardless of of who she was working for. So we should definitely talk about the villains in this because. I find the villains in this film are really fun. Yeah, I agree. I think they're the best, one of the brighter spots, definitely one of the brighter spots. Uh, you have sort of a, a team of them with Dr. Mm-hmm. Kananga, played by Yafakoto, as the, the master villain. Um, and he's very good. He carries a lot of intensity. He sort of spars verbally with, uh, with Bond. And um, uh, you have his uh, um, viewpoint and interactions with Solitaire as well, which give you some uh, some fun stuff. And of course, we will have um, uh, some of the typical uh, Bond style uh, master plan and villain's lair and so on. Talking villain. Yes, definitely yeah. talking villain. And uh, they they end him with a Mr. Big joke that I thought was, uh, that I always enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, it, it works. It's silly, but yeah. why not? It, it, the visuals are a little off. <laughs> and of course, he also does his bit as Mr. Big, who is his, yeah. his alternate identity, uh, uh, an American mobster with an incredibly uh, horrible-looking gray face that's pretty obviously <laughs> makeup right from the start. I mean, uh, yeah. they have him appear for like a few seconds in the earlier scene, and then um, where everyone else who was standing around Kananga is there, except Kananga's not there. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's pretty obvious who it is. I'm not sure, like, I, I maybe didn't guess that when I was eight, but... Um, yeah, when I first saw this when I was 10 or 12, I was completely shocked when when Mr. Big reveals himself to be Dr. Kananga. Yeah. But we've only really yeah. met Mr. Big in that one brief scene where he tells them to take him out and waste him. And and it's like he doesn't get enough time to really register. If he'd yeah. spent more than a few minutes there, you'd think, well, this guy's obviously make, under some makeup or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, his scenes are kind of funny, and, and the one where he actually uh, reveals himself to Bond is a really good scene. Yes, it is. Very and strong. And every, everyone concerned played it very well. Roger Moore played it well, and especially Yafit Koto played it well. Uh, I also, I like the whole dynamic of uh, Kananga slash Mr. Big playing both ends of the, of the chain, you know, playing the... Um, uh, you know, uh, growing the drugs and then selling them uh, as the the gangster slash dealer in New York. I I like that connection of having the the uh, the dual role of uh, Kananga. Yeah, and I think that was a, also a nice homage to uh, Fleming because Fleming did create the Mister Big character. Uh, he was the villain of the book, and uh, this way they were able to create their own villain and yet still have the Fleming character in there to some extent. Yes, that's right. And there were some some henchmen in here which were were also fun. Um, Teehee, played by Julius Harris, was uh, this odd sort of guy with. Uh, uh, a mechanical arm with this sort of uh, hook-like con- contraption at the end of it that could uh, could qua- could cause quite a lot of damage. Yeah, and uh, just an, unfortunately, not not the best for synthesis in some of the earlier scenes. <laughs> Maybe not, out. but I yeah, but I did uh, think it was uh, kind of imposing, and it had yeah. a bizarre quality that I liked too. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it just uh, there there are certain shots where just uh, you know the the angle of it, and you know he's, he's doing his best job, but you know sort of trying to hold it out straight, but it's not quite working. So, you, know, you can you can kind of kind of see the hand holding up the hook, you know. But, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, but uh, I mean, that uh, that does fade away as the film goes along. It's, I think it's primarily just just early on, but uh, it, it's a little obvious that he's just he's just holding it there. 
Yeah, the moment when he starts using it to uh, open large cans and things like that um, yeah. was sort of a fun one. Yeah. Uh, equally bizarre, if not more bizarre, was Baron Samity, played by Jeffrey Holder, who was sort of um, like an entertainer slash voodoo priest type character. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, he's, he's definitely uh, yeah. Does he does seem to be be playing the dual roles, whether he's you know whether for the the tourists or uh, for the locals? <laughs> no, yeah, and of and course he was that. he was a well known choreographer and uh, went on to be the Seven Up guy. So yes, I yeah. remember him as the Seven Up guy primarily. Yeah. Global, global yeah. fame was his shortly afterwards. He also gets to survive the movie, and the movie hints that he is really the. He may be the real Baron Samaday because he's been killed in the movie a couple times, or at least once, and uh, and yet still shows up at the end. Yes, that's right. And yeah, no. yeah he, he was just a, a fun character. And I think that those two characters, Teehee and Baron Samaday, were both villains who were smiling and laughing a lot, but were able to do that and still seem threatening which is a hard thing for an actor to pull off. You know, that can descend into uh, sort of comedy villains that are not threatening at all very quickly. And I really felt with those characters that it stayed sort of creepy and imposing, and I liked them for that. Yeah, and I also think I, li- I liked Whisper as well, the fat, almost mute henchman who doesn't really accomplish much in the film, but is, is entertaining. To me, he's like yeah. the third... Played by Earl Jolly Brown, yeah. To me, he's like the third part. There are three henchmen, as far as I... For me, they're all three of his henchmen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as no, you say, probably... he doesn't... He doesn't do a whole lot, but he's defi- definitely there and, you know, is sort of a large guy with a whispery voice. So he sort of adds to the bizarre quality of these, uh, these you know, these people who are there as the villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but it's, it's certainly a case of having some, you know, some very, very strong talent on the villainous side of uh, the film. And, uh, you know, for, you know, Yapa Kono certainly, you know, has gone on to a, a stellar career in uh, Alien and uh, I mean, Homicide Life on the Street, the TV series from the 90s, one of my favorites. And uh, with Jeffrey Holder, it's always amused me that, yeah, I mean, he's known for being the Seven Up Man and, uh, and Baron Samady, you know, when, you know, he has, has had this stellar career as a choreographer and dancer. And if anybody wants to catch up with that, there's a wonderful documentary called uh, Jeffrey and Carmen from uh, about 10 years ago about him and about, uh, him and his wife. If, if you want to find out about the, the other side of uh, his career. Yeah, he's certainly done um, uh, you know, a lot of work in a variety of areas. So if we're talking about characters, I guess there, there are probably two more characters to mention. Uh, first is obviously the return, once again, of Felix Leiter. However, this time it's actually a, a decent performance. He has a personality. He's a good actor, mm-hmm. David Hedison. And, I mean, the, the sign of how much they liked him is that they eventually invited him back 15 years later yeah. So uh, for License to Kill. So this obviously right. is one of their, one of their favorite, uh, de- uh, favorite Felix Leiters, and he's good support. Yeah, this is the Felix Leiter that I liked, uh, who, you know, would raise his voice and would have his own opinion and really say something and uh, sometimes offer his support just a little bit reluctantly. Yeah, and he's not, he's not yeah. taking orders from Bond, whereas all other previous, the other previous Felixes, except for Jack Lord, seem to be following his instruction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the, this is the first time, you know, I, but I, I really think of, of Leiter really acting like, you know, he is head of his own team. I mean, you know, it's partially, you know, actually showing him, you know, doing all the surveillance and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously having his own operation going on. But, uh, yeah. That, Coordinating that was, his own team and so on. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you know he's you know he's he's giving Bond assistance where he can, but uh, you know yeah he's definitely you know off off doing his own stuff at the, at the same time. Yeah, it was definitely a good film for uh, for Felix and one that that uh, I I really remembered this Felix. Some of the others from seeing them years ago, I didn't always remember all that well. Yeah. Uh, now I guess we have to mention Sheriff Pepper, don't we? <laughs> yep, J. W. Yeah. Pepper. 
Played uh-huh. by Clifton James. Yeah, a good yeah. actor. Um, I, I would guess that Tom Mankiewicz must have really liked In the Heat of the Night and decided that since they were in Louisiana and in the South, they might as well get a Rod Steiger-like <laughs> sheriff to act as comic relief. I don't know what other movies. I'm sure there were a couple other of those sort of moonshiner movies around that time, but I think... Yeah, <laughs> the, the character at the time apparently was quite popular. But, yeah, in retrospect, he's kind of hard to watch. Yeah, and, and for me, the, the biggest problem with uh, J.W. Pepper is when he's on screen, it's his own movie. In fact, he and Bond inhabit separate films in this movie, really. The, like, J.W. Pepper gets his whole sequence with all the, all the other henchmen and his own police people. While Bond is on the water, there's no real interaction. There's no real connection. Yeah, the connections and the scenes that had both of them—it was all very tenuous. Like. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't work. It's like it's for me. The boat chase, obviously, one of the signature pieces in this movie, is really not that interesting because Roger Moore mm-hmm. spends his time just basically driving a boat ahead of other people. He has yeah. no dialogue during this scene. He does very little of interest other than jump a boat once or twice and yeah. drive it into a swimming pool. And so all the interesting stuff is going on outside of that boat chase, where it's all the goons trying to get like the fastest boat on the water billy bob my cousin billy bob and then it's and mocking jw pepper's like stupidity and all the people around him being equally stupid so that it's two separate movies and it's it's a real problem for the film for me okay fair enough i did actually enjoy the boat chase itself i like the dynamic of it and um the way things were uh, were arranged and choreographed in a um I I enjoyed. I found it fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I the more the more I watch, it, yeah, the more I watch it, I just find it, it it just goes on and on and on. I mean, it it it's too long a sequence of things. And if and, more uh, it had, if more it had the girl in the boat or something, if he had someone mm-hmm. to play off, there could have been more interesting dialogue. Yeah, but there yeah. just wasn't anything to do. It, it, there was no, there was nothing other than the uh, what's happening outside. They were using that as the way to make it interest or keep it entertaining. But it does go on for almost fifteen minutes. That is that is long, and it is uh, maybe a case of them deciding that they had a big set piece for this film and they were really going to use it. Uh, perhaps a little bit like what they did with underwater work in Thunderball. I don't know. Yeah, I just I found that most of the action sequences in this movie, of which the boat chase is the best one, uh, were underwhelming. You have like the plane chase at the airport. You have the bus chase, which has the good gag with the double decker bus. Yeah. But it's otherwise not that interesting. And that's the uh, gag with the top half of the bus being sliced off by the bridge. Yeah, no, that was oh. that was very good. But the rest of it isn't that it's not that interesting a chase. And then and the car the car sequence on the West Side Highway. But yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, that was one thing that I found a, a little odd this time around. It, it, uh, that whole lead up to the the bus chase. It you know they there they are wandering into this village with this you know horde of police who are all in Tanangas. You know, back pocket, and we just heard him say, you know, you know, get him by whatever means, you know, and they just let him wander in and get in the bus, you know, and then decide to. <laughs> maybe maybe it's, the, maybe it's attempt to sort of illustrate the lazy islander kind of mentality or whatever. I don't yeah, know. Right? Yeah, I guess <laughs> maybe the, the previous film, Diamonds Are Forever, had hordes of incompetent police police yeah. characters and it was like they were back again yeah yeah oh yeah so, I, mean, I suppose they're early 70s counterculture it's like you know yeah let's let the like yeah i mean between those police and, and sheriff pepper it's like you know yeah the, you know the the police do not come off too well with themselves. but but yeah but, but with the bus the bus chase and then with the plane as well i mean it was like there again it's like they were sort of going for this like lighter more slapsticky aspect of the to the chases um you know even with the plane i mean the what you know, you know, Bond and his little Cessna, you know, just managing, you know, to outmaneuver, you know, sort of taxiing around, you know, taxiing around the airport, and uh, you know, and then to the point of ripping the wings off. Um, so you don't, you know, you don't even get a nice dramatic, you know, fly it off at the end of the day. <laughs> You know, yeah, def- a, a, a very different tone to say, you know, the you know, classic, you know, Aston Martin and Goldberg. Yeah, absolutely. Ste- uh, stepping behind the scenes for for a moment. This was uh, at a stage where the Bond franchise was really trying, was really still trying to find itself again. It hadn't been sort of at a peak of being really successful 
really, since you only live twice, as good as Honor Majesty's Secret Service was, it wasn't that successful. And the sort of, you know, the Bond template from the early 60s was really not something that they could sell quite as well anymore. And it was something where they were really trying to find what a Bond film should be like now, you know, at at that point in, you know, stepping into the into 73. And this was actually a very successful film. So some of the things they did in here were in the the long run, as we look at them, maybe didn't work out that well. And I think some of them did work fairly well. I did enjoy Roger Moore and I did enjoy the villains. At the time, this was a big success in finding what Bond should be again. Mm -hmm. And one of the steps for that, yet again, and this is several films in a row we've been talking about this, they were trying to figure out who should play Bond this time. It was pretty clear that Connery was not coming back, and uh, I think it had been been mentioned, I think, the director had sort of talked to him and, you know, was sort of hoping. But apparently there was uh, a plan and a ranking. They were talking about getting Burt Reynolds in to play Bond. <laughs> I mean, that, and, and when you think about how many times he fought, like, uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice, I guess it would have fit in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, I actually hadn't heard that. And it was funny because I was just thinking about, you know, yeah, in the context of the time, you know, that, you know, yeah, Sheriff Pepper, you know, hasn't aged well, but. You well, Burt Reynolds was later. in the, and, and he was in that White Lightning movie, the first of the gun yeah, running, yeah. Uh, the, the yeah, Moonshiner yeah, movie. Lightning, you know, but then Smokey and the Bandit is the one I was thinking of a few years later, which is a huge hit. Right. <laughs> you know, for the, for right. the time, it's played well. One of the reasons they didn't go with him is uh, Cubby Broccoli was quite adamant that. Bond should be tall, he should be over six foot, and they should have mm-hmm. someone British for the role. Right. Oh yeah, if it had been Burt Reynolds, that would have been the end of the series. It would have been dead in two, two movies. Probably, yeah. It, it, it would have, have totally been dead. Well, yeah, it would have lost its character. Yeah, it would, it would have been pretty, pretty horrible. I think another thing about this movie is they, again, stuck to the U.S. as their principal location, or in, in Jamaica. And I think that was, uh, I don't know, it showed a lack of uh, originality because they'd spent most of the previous movie also in the U.S. Yeah, it was another attempt to try and Americanize without Americanizing. Yeah, and it was... And, enough. yeah, had some moments to it, but, yeah, in many ways didn't work yeah if it was doing trying to do anything it was trying to do the whole the black culture thing as being different but again that was like a horrible misstep that i think they should never have bothered or at least if they were doing they should have done with a little more finesse yeah Yeah. Yeah. and i guess that is something that we need to talk about a little bit more is uh how they dealt with uh the u.s and the fictional country of san monique and with uh, uh black characters in black culture in most, you know, in those cases. And unfortunately, it was not very well handled. No, not right right from the very beginning. Uh, in the in the opening scene where the three agents are murdered, um, it's all done by black people. And of course, the, the scene in New Orleans is I find particularly disturbing because it implies that everybody in the crowd, the old women, the young people, every single person in the crowd was involved in the murder. They're all complicit yeah. in the murder. And it suggests that everyone in New Orleans is basically part of the gang. And then later in the movie, everyone in Harlem is part of the gang. On every corner, yeah. there's a... There's a lookout every every single person the cab driver who picks you up downtown the girl in the in the occult shop virtually everybody and i found that really troublesome yeah mm-hmm. it was those two or three scenes where it was sort of like everyone was in on it were yeah kind of bizarre and you know not yeah not just not not good just not well done and not you know what they were doing in it was yeah just no. Well, I, and I know that New York New York had not been disney in the early 70s, and so New York City was generally considered a grimy place. But mm-hmm. this movie goes out of its way to make it, like, extremely dangerous. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but 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 also, yeah. But, but yeah, that 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 odd sense of you know, yeah. But uh, you know, everybody's in on it. It's, I think you know that sort of you know this monolith, you know, monolithic black culture where you know every, everybody's part of the gang. That uh, you know is, is is most objectionable. It um, was handled in a very insensitive way, mm-hmm. and I think some of the San Monique things and the the voodoo sequences and what have you. Some of those were handled uh, pretty insensitively as well. It was a little bit better by the fact that it was a fictional country they were talking about. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, that this is one of the few times where Bond movies created a fictional country for the purpose of its, of its plot, and that always works out better because every time they use a real country, they end up offending the population. Yeah. <laughs> Die Another Day nearly started a war in Korea. It was in such bad taste for oh, Koreans. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, all the, yeah, I can uh, sort of see that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing though that um, I mean, I, I actually I have not read the the book of Live and Let Die, but I was reading up a bit on it, and what what's ironic is that in some ways, I mean, what they were depicting things was sadly a reflection of the book, where you know that the book itself has gotten some criticism for the you know where I thought um, I, I can't remember in the book if he if, if he did have it in San Monique or you know or actually identified it as Jamaica, um, but uh, you know but yeah but it was uh, there was some some similar broad strokes and stereotypes and generalizations going on in the book, which you know, sadly made their way into the film, especially given you know, the fact it was being done year, years later when uh, in the early 70s you would you would hope they might have tried to be a, a, a little more enlightened, but uh, no, just went for the, the sort of easy out for the film. But uh, you know, yeah, but, but certainly, I mean, that, that that whole that whole scene in the in the bar in Harlem, you know, with the the, the uh, revolving booth. That uh, you know, oh yeah, nobody notices <laughs> the white guy just get you know. Like, no, no, everybody just, notices. They don't care. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, but it, you know that uh, was uh, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, if anything, I mean, it almost reminds, you know, it's almost like getting to the point of, you know, parody like Get Mark rather than, you know, <laughs> actual serious eye film. Some of the Bond films are completely serious eye films, but, uh, but, but almost verging too, too much in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly elements of that. Yeah, and 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 the funny thing about both of these elements, you know, both the funeral and that, is you know, no, they, you know, they it wasn't like it was just, you know, they they uh, did it and then thought better of it. It's like no, they come back, they, they revisit both of those. <laughs> you, know, you have yet another murderous funeral, and then the club in New Orleans that also has its own trapdoor. <laughs> yep. Right. When they were doing location hunting for this film, they came across. Uh, a gate that had a sign on it that said, warning, trespassers will be eaten. (laughs) And that was the actual sign there. And uh, of course, they decided this was something they, uh, they had to look into. And it was, in fact, a crocodile ranch. Do you know what the the name of the guy who ran the crocodile ranch was? Of course. Was Ross Benanga. Yep. And the the villain, of course, was uh, was named for him. And Ross Kananga performs the best stunt in the movie. He does. Kananga apparently inherited the family business when his father was. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like one of those snake uh, the snake handlers. You know, yeah, eventually he... it just passes down to the kid until they get bit, and then. That, that's right. Yeah, he was. Um, he was the. In addition to their host at this place, he was the uh, the crocodile handler for the film. And they had the, this sequence where Bond was stuck on this uh, very small little island surrounded by the crocodiles on this ranch. And of course, Bond was going to run across the backs of the crocodiles to, uh, to escape and to, to get ashore. There was only one person they could find who was willing to attempt that stunt. Well, uh, didn't they just basically ask him if it was even possible, and he said that he could do it, but otherwise they didn't even think it could be done? Maybe. I uh, think that they went to him and and asked whether he could, whether that was any, any feasibility to it, and he said that he could do it. The documentary I was looking at, these are the late 90s, early 2000s DVD documentaries, they included all five attempts 
that Ross Kananga made to uh, to do that son. The fifth wow. of which was the successful one that was included in the film. <laughs> and if you are in any way squeamish about Crocodile, <laughs> you might not want to watch that. Some of it uh, does make you can make you squirm a little bit. True, but they did. They were their their jaws were sort of wired shut or tied shut, and. Oh, uh, one of the takes, one of them had its jaws opening quite a bit there. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> uh, you you could quite you could quite clearly see him uh, take a bite in the foot. In the uh, in the actual shot in the film, it's just his feet running over the tops. Unfortunately, there was just nothing they could do about that. So it wouldn't stop them in later movies from having completely obvious stunt doubles full stunts off. I don't think they could make it work this time. It, it was a pretty dynamic uh, scene. It, it, the whole scene, not even just that stunt, the whole sequence there was uh, was quite good. And I, I like the Crocodile Ranch sequences in this with uh, uh, Teehee showing off his, his crocodiles and the one that got his arm and so on. I, I, I like that too. I've always enjoyed it, but I noticed this time more than ever, the whole, okay, let's just go now. <laughs> And so all the goons, there were plenty of goons. I'm sure a few of them were guarding the place. And shouldn't there be someone to actually guard the outside of the building? But they mm-hmm. all vanish at sea. Everybody yeah. goes inside. And it's like there's nobody guarding the perimeter of this extremely sensitive drug lab. So when he, when Moore has, when, when Bond escapes, he has time to actually get the crocodiles to slowly go up and into the building. Because yeah. they're not very fast moving. So that must have had like 10, 15 minutes to have that work. No. Nobody's yeah. around there, yeah. and I'm sure they weren't all scientists. Yeah, yeah. Don't leave a guard on the door, you know. Just in case. <laughs> that was like one of the most shocking, like uh, the Austin Powers parody. Was like, aren't you going to watch? No, no. I'm sure it'll all work out just like we planned. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. It's a fair point. But it is still a great sequence and very original. I guess we should talk about one of the other shining moments of the movie, which we haven't discussed up till now, which is the theme song, which uh, certainly has survived and is is probably one of the most memorable aspects of the movie. And one of the well-remembered Bond theme songs altogether, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they, they decided to go and get someone big, and they got Paul McCartney and Wings, and he turned in one of his best, more, most rocking performance songs like as Paul McCartney and Wings, because they really did not rock out that much. That's right, and it, it's a very well-written song, and it's, uh, it's fun. I like the title sequence that went with it as well. The, the shining part of it was definitely the song, but the the title sequence worked uh, worked well. It was a neat way to sort of set the tone as being something a little different. Yeah, and as like a Beatles fan, it was very much one of McCartney's little different songs within one song. It's like the rock, the whole the the whole instrumental after the chorus is like a rock song. The opening is more of a ballad, and then there's the whole bridge, which is sort of a almost bluesy number. And it all blends right. really well. Like three different songs blend together extremely well for this work. Yes, the music in this film was a little bit different, to say the least. Yeah, uh, uh, George Martin, but... Uh, so there, there's your other Beatles connection, and yeah. I'm sure uh, those things were not coincidental, that George Martin was doing the music for this, but he wasn't doing all of the orchestral work and that I sort see. of thing. There were other people involved. It's not the strongest score. I don't know if Martin really got the, got the whole concept of the Bond movies. Uh, there's it's, some... a very, it's a very pop music styled score, especially in the, in the percussion. But yeah, across, across the board, it's just a very, it's more of a pop music trying to be a, a somewhat more classical sounding incidental music score, which didn't entirely work. It worked in some points, but it did not entirely work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always got the the sense that uh, you know, because of the you know, New Orleans locales and the you know, and, I mean, we've been in the Caribbean before, but uh, you know, the, you know, so much of this was New Orleans and Caribbean, and uh, you know, they they were trying to give it a little, you know, a little more of a, a bluesier flavor, but it, uh, you know, but it's uh, at, at the same time, it was <laughs> given given the given the people involved, and even if it is George Martin, there was you know, there, there's something about sort of the, the Bond production team that's a 
wooden piece layer to completely pull that off. So you know, yeah, it, it, it winds up being more poppy than uh, you know, go, you know, if it actually got all all the way and gotten uh, you know Eric Clapton to you know sit in and do some stuff. But, uh, you know, certainly yeah, I th- I think with George Martin, it was destined to be more pop than blues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but that's you know I I I I've always had it in my head that's what you know that that was Cubby Broccoli's you know well, <laughs> you know he might, he might, I mean he, he might have been thinking you know like oh yes you know we yeah, we we need to go a little poppy with this but so that's his version of it to get Paul McCartney into his part. Uh, one one musical note that I always like is uh, when I watch this I always remember it is the uh, very first scene with the funeral in New Orleans they the band playing that mar- the march music before they yeah. get all poppy after the guy's been killed that opening bit was used by a Scottish band called Texas on a song called Mother's Heaven in the late 90s and uh, sorry late 80s early 90s and yeah. I've always liked that it opens the song with that exact music if you uh, if you go online and search out the song I'm sure you'll hear that at the very beginning yeah yeah no well, well yeah, yeah I, I mean the irony is you know is uh, like whatever reservations you may have about the the scene and the murder itself I mean you know no I mean, that that's one of the the authentic elements in the movie but yep. you know no, that well, that is one of the normal you know, Know, New Orleans street bands, and uh, you know, and even in terms of the go, going from dirt to upbeat, I mean, that is the the the, the classic uh, arc of a New Orleans jazz funeral. So, so yeah, not you know, you know, that is usually usually the turn point. It's usually you know, no, after, after the deceased has been buried or after the hearse has left for the funeral is when you then go more more upbeat and start celebrating the life rather than just mourning it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they definitely give it a more you know a, a, a sadly sinister tip. <laughs> That's right. Uh, another um, uh, person working on the production, I believe uh, this was the, the first time in a Bond movie that Derek Meddings was working on it. So he, oh, yeah. uh, he can count as our, uh, our Jerry Anderson connection <laughs> yep. this, this time. <laughs> as he, by, the, by that time, he was well known for doing uh, uh, model work for the Jerry Anderson Super Marionation um, uh, children's uh, marionette puppet shows in the 1960s. Yep. And they actually gained a very good reputation for doing... Uh, model work of different types very well and Jerry Anderson and his team had actually been asked in the 60s to do work on other films other than the things that uh, were their own productions and they basically said well no we don't we don't do that we only work on our own stuff Mm -hmm. And they had been asked about working on Bond films. They had also been asked to work on 2001 A Space Odyssey. And they didn't do either of those, but uh, Derek Meddings did uh, move on in the 70s and uh, worked on the, the Bond films quite extensively, starting with this one. So it was really nice to see him listed there, um... Uh, for you know the model work that he's so good at. Yeah, and certainly you know of course I, I have to get my my plug in. I mean yes, the super marination stuff is the stuff that sort of has uh, lived on in popularity. But uh, you know the the work he'd done on uh, on Doppelganger and then on UFO was uh, you know I always thought it was where he was he was really honing things and having to make it look as realistic as possible, which then you know just fed into the work on the Bond films. That's right. Yeah, I guess uh, UFO would have been one of the one of the last things he did with Jerry Anderson, probably, yep. because he yep. uh, he wasn't working on Space 1999. It had moved on to other people by then. But that's right, of course. And he did some very good work on UFO, no question. Yep. So I think we're getting to the point where uh, we can we can start to wrap this up. Uh, Gary, why don't I start with you? What did you think of this film? Well, in watching it again, I, I it's reinforced my opinion that it's it is probably one of the weaker ones for me. Um, again, it's I find it very hard to get past all the racism, and uh, it, it sort of detracts from the plot. I also find that the plot is kind of not that relevant. I mean, Bond, other than going back to rescue Solitaire, there's no reason to even be involved at the end, and virtually everything he does throughout the film is about rescuing Solitaire. It's it's there's really nothing for him 
him to do here. He just happens to run across a guy who has a drug plan, a drug deal plan, or, or something like that. So that doesn't do much for me. I like the villains. Uh, I really like the song. Um, but beyond that, I, I find the movie does not age well. And I, I also think, again, they didn't have Q in the movie, and that was probably a mistake. That's right. This was. Uh the only one for a long time that did not have Q, I think. Well, I will say, this is one of the ones that I really liked when I was younger, and then didn't watch very much for, uh, for quite a while. And a lot of the problems in this are, are really there, absolutely. The, uh, the racism and the way some of these things are handled, and the character of J.W. Pepper, they were just not good, and they were real problems. Uh, I still enjoy a number of aspects of this film. I like how it plays out in many ways. The sequences that involve Bond and the villains I quite like. Uh, I do enjoy uh, Solitaire and how she fits into this. So... It, this is a, this one is a mixed bag for me. It's one that I find fun, but I also find has has lots of problems. So it's some pointing sideways on this one. Edmund? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm more more on the on Gary's side of this one. Um, I uh, I mean, especially having lived in New York, I mean, I, just, I, I just find the whole Harlem sequences just absurd. Um, and uh, you know, and if, and if anything, I mean, yeah, I've lived in New York, and I likely live in the South. So I mean, <laughs> at the time when I first saw this, I might have thought, you know, Sheriff Pepper made sense, but uh, you know, but, you know, but he's, he's sort of the, the, the flip side of the the, the, the racism. <laughs> or I mean, it's, I mean, it's, the thing I find hard. I mean, it's, I mean yes, I mean, you know, the proper word is racism, but it almost seems like cluelessness more than anything. Um, you know, just no, no attempt to even, you know, sort of, you know, to take things realistically. Um, and uh, and I guess I mean one one thing with the the 2020 hindsight of all these years later. I mean, what uh, I kind of you know I, th- I think they actually had a you know there was a missed opportunity here. You know, because as uh, as you mentioned, Brian. I mean, you know, no, I mean, you know. The, the villains are well played. You know, they had some wonderful talent here, and uh, you know, actually, you know, not that we'd expect you know realism and nuance in a Bond film, but I think they could have gone, gone more in that direction. Certainly, given the, uh, the the people they had playing these roles. So, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really consider it a a, a a bit of a misfire. Um, you know, yeah, they were trying to you know sort of shake things up for a new era, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know just went to in many ways just sort of went too broad and stereotypical for, uh, for, for too much of it. So, and, know, yeah, there, there, there are some good elements, but, uh, but overall, there's uh, you know, too many problems for me to, you know, to consider it a, you know, a, a really good film. And you know what's funny is this movie, it actually had the chance of being the most prominent exploitation movie ever if it had been good. I mean, yeah. the other ones were all sort of cult films relegated to Quentin Tarantino festivals or, you know, like right. uh, late night showings on, on certain cable channels. But this movie, because it's a Bond movie, it gets seen by millions more people. And if they'd done a good job with it, it really could have been a good remnant of that era. Mm-hmm. You know, with strong, yeah, interesting characters, very dynamic. And now I, it just doesn't work. There's, it, it, it could have been so much better. Yeah, definitely. Okay, fair enough. So this is Brian saying, take care, folks. And this is Edmund. Uh, we will return with Man with the Golden, Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, well, yeah, so and this Gary, too, we'll be back uh, with Man with the Golden Gun, and pretty much everyone else will be along for the ride again. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com. <laughs>